Hi, I'm Jordan. And I'm Kit. Welcome to Starry Time, where stars plus lines equal stories. On this month's podcast, we are going to be visiting Leo, the lion of the night sky. The constellation Leo, which is Latin for lion, is the 12th largest constellation in the sky with an area of 947 square degrees. It is the third largest of the zodiac constellations after Virgo and Aquarius. Though it's actually the fourth largest constellation on the celestial equator, as Ophucus the snake is two square degrees larger. They definitely snubbed the snake by including it on the celestial equator, but not giving a zodiac sign of itself. But like all our great mm-hmm. subjects in season one, Leo the Lion was identified in the second century by Ptolemy, making it one of the great <laughs> 48 constellations. The history of this constellation as a lion actually predates the classical era. There's evidence of this constellation as a lion as early as 4000 BCE among the Mesopotamians, as well as in records from ancient Babylonian astronomy. So not quite as far back as Taurus, which we realized took us 10,000 years BC to the Ice Age, but still pretty impressive. If it's 4000 years BC, that means we've had 6,000 years of lions in the sky. And unlike last month's constellation, there seems to be pretty uniform agreement that this is actually a lion. Yeah, there's definitely more consensus around this one. No crayfish, crab, lobster, some sort of invertebrate (laughs) debate. Everyone understands this is a lion. So, Kit, Mm -hmm. does it actually look like a lion? When you take a look (laughs) at it, what were your first impressions? This does have lion energy, especially if you look at the IAU constellation drawing. It looks like a lion in profile. It has two legs, a tail, a big mane, and there are some other drawings of it that if you just use Google, look more like a duck, but the one from IAU looks pretty good. What did, what did you think, Jordan? Did you see the lion? When I first took a look at it, I definitely saw what you said, like some sort of duck-looking thing, some sort of quacker. But looking at the IAU one, it definitely looks a lot like a lion. We have a triangle tail on one end, we have a parallelogram head on the other, and a very recognizable body shape in between. Mm -hmm. So if you actually get to the IAU drawing, it's pretty convincing, yeah. Yeah, and Leo is a recognizable constellation, not only because of this shape, but because it has some really bright stars that you can find pretty easily by first locating the Big Dipper asterism. Basically, if you look from one direction of the pointer stars of the Big Dipper, you get Polaris, and if you look to the other, you'll get Regulus, which is one of the bright stars in Leo. Um, Although that sort of finding of things is mostly applicable to the Northern Hemisphere. More technically, because we love being technical, its right extension is 11 hours, and its declination is positive 15 degrees. Mm-hmm. And like the other zodiac signs, it's at least somewhat visible in both hemispheres. And in this case, it's visible between latitudes 90 and minus 65 degrees. It can be seen between January and June in the northern hemisphere and summer and autumn in the southern hemisphere when it will appear upside down. Yeah, and the best time to see it is going to be April in the northern hemisphere. Perfect. 
So now we've got a good idea of what Leo looks like and where to find it. Let's talk about some of the brightest stars in this constellation. Yeah, and there are actually a lot of bright ones in Leo. So last month when we discussed Cancer, we noted that none of the stars in that constellation has a visible magnitude brighter than positive 3. By contrast, Leo has five stars that are brighter than positive 3. And remember, on this scale, the more positive number correlates to the less bright star. Mm -hmm. And if that sounds confusing, it's because it is. <laughs> but you can check out last month's Cosmic Background segment and you can learn more and we'll explain how this works. Leo has nine main stars and we're going to focus as usual on the three brightest ones. So the first brightest star in the constellation is Alpha Leonis, also called Regulus. And you'll notice that Regulus is a Latin name, it means prince, and this is one of the very few stars, and I, I want to emphasize stars here, not space objects, but it's one of the very few stars that has a Latin name rather than a name that's derived from Arabic. So this is a quadruple star that together has a visible magnitude Whoa. of 1.36. Two of the stars comprise Regulus A, which is a binary star system that has a blue-white main sequence star, and they think a white dwarf companion star. And this system, Regulus A, is 79 light years from the sun. The other two stars in this quadruple star system are far from each other and far from Regulus A. But this star, Regulus, as one unit, was known as the heart of the lion in ancient Babylonian astronomy, and it's located, as you might expect, in the front of the constellation. The second brightest star in this constellation is Beta Leonis. Mm -hmm. Beta Leonis is also called Denebola, which is derived from an Arabic phrase meaning tail of the lion. Some would say, unsurprisingly, it's on the opposite side <laughs> of the constellation from Regulus. It's a blue-white main-sequence star with a visible magnitude of 2.14, and it's about 36 light-years from Earth. So it's closer to Earth than Regulus, but also far dimmer. It's estimated to be less than 400 million years old. So it's pretty young as far as stars go. Yeah, absolutely. So for reference, our sun is estimated to be 4.6 billion years old. And although Beta Leonis is only 1.78 times the mass of our sun, it is in fact 15 times more luminous. However, this luminosity varies, which has led some astronomers to suspect it's what's known as a variable star. We can talk about luminosity for a second while we're here. So, I'll ask you, Kit, what is it, and how does it differ from apparent or visible magnitude, which we discussed last month? Yeah, it's a great question. So... Apparent or visible magnitude is how bright a star or stellar object appears based on our observations here on Earth. And if you want a real deep dive into that, definitely listen to last month's episode. Because the closer things are to Earth, the brighter they tend to be to look to us here. Even if objectively, if you were to look at the galaxy from some other point of view, they're not so bright, actually. They just happen to be bright because they're close to us. Right. Um, so luminosity is something a little bit different. It's what is considered an absolute measure, and it's telling us the total energy output of a star per unit of time. The standard reporting here is joules per second, and it's independent of the distance you are from that stellar object. And for stars, luminosity is determined by the temperature and the size of the star. 
Exactly. So there are two ways we can look at a star. We can measure it based on how it appears to us here on Earth, and then we can observe it based on how it would appear to some fixed distance that has nothing to do with Earth. Right, and if we wanted to stay in the magnitude scale, we could use something called absolute magnitude, which is basically the same thing as visible magnitude, but we assume that every object is 10 parsecs away. So 10 parsecs is the magic number for some reason. <laughs> and I'm sure astronomers picked it because it's a good place for observation. And of course, as we discussed, absolute magnitude also is on the inverse logarithmic scale. So the sun's luminosity is 3.78 times 10 to the 26th joules per second, and its absolute magnitude is 4.83. However, its apparent or visible magnitude from here on Earth is negative 26.7. Yeah, very confusing because remember, on the magnitude scale, negative numbers are brighter. So luminosity is a little bit easier to understand because in the luminosity scale, higher numbers mean more energy. So I think that's probably a little bit more intuitive than the inverse logarithmic scale. But yeah, so I think I hope that helped a little bit to clarify luminosity versus some of these other measures. Luminosity, at least, like the more jewels it churns out, the higher the number. <laughs> so that's easy for me to understand. The magnitude, the inverse logarithmic scale, where the negative numbers correlate to how bright something is, I'm still learning. But okay, <laughs> that's great. Can we get on to the next star, please? Yeah. The third brightest star I am pleased to announce is Gamma Leonis. Alpha Beta, Gamma, mm -hmm. I'm getting the feeling that our guy Bayer pretty much only cared about Leo. Can't remember the last time he got all three of the <laughs> brightest stars right? And if he wanted to focus all his energy on Leo, you know, I can't blame him. Can't blame him. I mean, I wonder if Bayer was a Leo. I mean, I think we can safely assume yes. Or perhaps it has more to do with the fact that, as we stated, these stars are really bright. So maybe that made his job easier? Mm-hmm. Anyways, let's get on to Gamma. So Gamma Leonis is also called Algiba, which is from an Arabic phrase meaning the forehead. It is also a binary star system, and it's part of an asterism in Leo called the sickle, which comprises the front of the lion. Together, this binary star system has a visible magnitude of 2.08, and the larger star is a giant K-type star with a luminosity that's 180 times that of our sun. So again, if we think of luminosity as a measure of how powerful this star's engine is, it's 180 times more energy output than our sun. This Gamma Leonis star is burning, burning, burning. <laughs> the sickle is burning, burning, burning. <laughs> Um, and in 2009, astronomers reported that there might actually be an exoplanet that's 2.14 times the mass of Jupiter orbiting this star. And, oh, I didn't mention before, so there's it's a binary star system, so the larger star is this giant K-type star, and the companion is a G-type star. And this whole system is 130 light years from Earth. All right, these are some great stars, and it's nice to actually give Bayer some credit for once. <laughs> We spent a lot of time dunking on our guy, but hey, he was an important figure in astronomy, and he did get some things right. We've got our brightest stars, but are they the best stars? 
the coolest or most fun or interesting stars of this constellation? When we get back, we'll find out what I have selected for my gold star of the month. Welcome back to our segment Gold Star, where we alternate picking the star or space object in our constellation of the month that captures our mind, our heart, our soul, possibly all three. Our soul. <laughs> Leo is a bright constellation, very recognizable, and there's a ton of interesting things to choose from in this constellation. So where did you decide to go with this one, Jordan? There was really a lot to choose from here with Leo. At first, I was intrigued, of course, by the Leo triplet, which is a set of spiral galaxies that are 35 million light years away and include NGC 3628, which is better known as the Hamburger Galaxy. Nom, 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 nom. All-time favorite name for a galaxy right there. But we've talked about galaxies before. Another strong contender was Wolf 359, which is a red dwarf star that is only 7.9 light years from Earth, making it one of the nearest stars to us following Alpha and Proxima Centauri and a few others. Oh, I'm kind of surprised that you didn't choose that one for a couple of reasons. I mean, it reminds me of Tea Garden's dwarf star, which you picked in Taurus in that constellation. But it's also used really frequently in sci-fi, including in Star Trek TNG, where it's the location of a battle between the Borg and the Federation. So something good really must have caught your eye. I mean, like you said, Wolf 359, it's right here in our home neighborhood. It comes up a lot in sci-fi like Alpha Centauri. All the same, I think I made a pretty good choice still. All right, lay it on us. What did you choose? I chose... The Leo Ring. Hmm, Leo Ring. Okay, what is it? Tell, tell me more. The Leo Ring was discovered in 1983 when a radio telescope was used to look at an area that seemed empty in Leo. What they wound up finding was a giant cloud of only light gases, such as hydrogen, helium, as well as some lithium, that was approximately six times the diameter of our Milky Way galaxy. Dang. So for about 40 years, astronomers assumed this was primordial, some sort of remnant of the Big Bang, because this was a giant empty space without any stars, only gas, and something of this size should have long ago collapsed into its own galaxy and stars. Mm. I mean, if they've been around since the Big Bang, these are some real slackers. I mean, it would be really cool to be able to find something like like primordial, you know, like something like before the Big Bang or like something in that era. But it seems like that's not where this story is going. Unfortunately or fortunately, <laughs> in 2009, new research on the Leo ring has suggested that in fact it may actually be the result of a massive collision between two galaxies, Messier 95 and NGC 3384. So actually what we're looking at here, this giant empty space is a battlefield left over from this collision. No, it's not as old as the Big Bang, but it still shows us what happens when these giant celestial objects collide. Yeah, it's definitely cool. And another great example of one of my favorite things that happens in science is that 
just how it evolves. At first, we find something that's completely unexpected. We create hypotheses. We test them. We continue to analyze data and develop new ideas. And and I just think that's such an important and cool part of science. And with these new findings, we can learn something that's equally, if not more compelling than our original hypothesis. Absolutely. So I guess it's time for the supermassive binary black holes from last month to move over so we can welcome the Galactic Memorial Zone, Leo Ring, to the Gold Star of the Month Club. We've talked astronomy. Now it's time to get into the myths and lore of this constellation. What do you remember about the myth of Leo, Kit? So Leo is our shared zodiac sign. And as such, I perhaps knew a bit more about it than the other astrological signs. So I knew that it was about the Nemean lion and that this was related to one of Hercules' 12 labors. So I I knew that much, but some of the stuff that I learned about this lion was kind of surprising. Um, but how about you? How much did you remember about this myth? Yeah, so trying to recollect this myth of Leo, I think I knew that it was a lion that Hercules killed. And I pretty much only remember Hercules even killing a lion because of the Disney movie. And there's this one scene of him posing, Mm -hmm. and he has this lion skin on his head. And in that movie, it's the lion scar from The Lion King. (laughs) So that made an impression on me. So uh, the Nemean lion was a lion that, for some unclear reason, took women as hostages. And, like, I don't know why only women. I don't know what a lion is doing with the hostages. Um, But that is his thing. That's a great question, Kit. Like, what is a lion doing with hostage women? Yeah, and it's really strange because in the Greco-Roman tradition, the lion is just a lion. But at the same time, he's also said to be the offspring of Orthus, who's the brother of Cerberus, and uh, either a chimera, echidna, um, but echidna might also be his mother. And there's some stories where this lion is also the offspring of Typhon. So maybe he's a monster lion somehow. I'm not really sure. Yes! Our guy Typhon, king of monsters! We haven't heard of him for at least a few months. Mm. So I guess, Kit, everyone's coming back to celebrate Leo season with us. <laughs> I like that his heritage or bloodline is all of this, like, diverse, monstrous creatures. Everybody bad, basically, mm-hmm. you know, distorted, six-headed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And yet, Leo just turns out, like, just a lion. Mm-hmm. You know, like, not a lion with wings or a lion with a vulture's head and its tail. It's just, it's just a lion. Yeah, just a lion. Um, and then there are some versions of the myth where he is a offspring of Selene, the mo- goddess of the moon. But what's really important is that the lion's fur is impervious to mortal weapons. His claws cut through armor. And so naturally, Hera raised this little monster and sent him off to the hills of Nemea. I guess just to be a jerk. Uh, it's not really clear why Hera doesn't like the people of Nemea or what her plan was, but the lion's there. And so naturally, Hercules' first labor was to kill the lion, which he does with some help from Athena. And that's basically the Greco-Roman myth. That's pretty much it. 
I've read some supporting details that say that Hercules chokes out the lion or rips his skull in half. And these are all very descriptive. Mm. They're all the same. It's just basically Hercules taking on one of Hera's surrogates. Mm. One of the monsters that she sent out to act out one of her grudges for some reason. Right? Like, she makes all these monsters, and she's got to share them with the world, right? No doubt. Leo may also be Humbaba, which is a monster that has the face and paws of a lion from ancient Assyrian and Sumerian mythology. Humbaba's job was to terrorize humans and protect his forests. His look is to be said, the look of death. And there are two forms of this story. In both, Gilgamesh, our guy, mm. kills Humbaba. In one version, Gilgamesh kills him to prevent his terrorizing of the humans. And in another, Gilgamesh is just kind of a jerk who's bored, who kills Humbaba just to prove his own glory or to gain glory. Either way, they behead the monster, and some believe that Humbaba is a precursor to Medusa and the Gorgons. But realistically, the stories are very similar. They're about heroes killing a lion or lion-like monster, sometimes for the good of their community, sometimes just because they can. I think that's a great transition into one of the core themes I saw in these myths, which is basically it's a hero narrative, a story about man conquering nature. That's so true, right? And it's never about them finding balance or peace with nature. And in these cases, not even having to do with controlling nature, but in fact, defeating and killing it. Right. And in these myths, our heroes are venerated for doing so. Especially in the case here of Gilgamesh, whose attack is completely prideful and unprovoked by Humbaba. Right, and it reminds me of these other interpretations of Humbaba from the English instructor Tom Drake at University of Idaho. Drake suggests and points out that we can understand Humbaba as a generalized other, that we cast as a generalized other in order to justify taking those resources. Of course, it's really easy for us to not care about this other when it's a non-human or a monster. And so I think that that also gave me something to sort of think about in terms of this idea of man versus nature and these hero myths. And I'll definitely post a link to Drake's website in our show notes because there is some really interesting unpacking and contextualizing over there. And another way we can think about this myth of Leo is by considering how different types of animals get cast in mythology. So far we're on month eight, but we've already seen crabs, fish, bulls, and rams in the zodiac constellations. And now here we add the lion. But none of our prior animals were really villainized in this same way. I mean, technically the crab was, but it was dispatched with very little fanfare. <laughs> exactly. So here in this myth, we have for the first time a predator. One that humans are definitively and understandably afraid of. And in the myth, it's cast as such. In contrast, we saw Ares the ram, who is a savior to children. We saw Taurus the bull, who is the form of Zeus. We see Pisces either as a savior fish or as even the gods Aphrodite and Eros. The crab, albeit cast as a foe, is kind of like a side-side-sidekick. None of them really built up in the way that this Nemean lion is in the Greek myths. Right, and animals are, like you're pointing out, deployed in differing ways 
probably based upon how humans relate to them. The stories reflect how these animals fit into our world, while they also have the potential, of course, to serve as symbols. So they can be gods, they can be saviors, they can be domesticated things or monsters, and ultimately how they're put into these stories teaches children and other people listening to these myths what to expect and how to feel about all these different animals. Speaking about how we teach others about animals, can we take a quick, 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 quick detour to Creature Corner before we do a little reconciliation of this myth? Absolutely. I need to know your top lion facts uh, for this new segment, Creature Corner. Yes, you asked for three lion facts, but I'm here to deliver at least three, and we can pick which ones are the best. Our first big fact is about the bites of these creatures. The skeletal muscles of the lion make up almost 60% of its entire body weight, and this represents the highest percentage of these muscles among any mammals. Well, okay, skeletal muscles, that means like muscles in its head? Muscles around the jaw oh, and its face, yes. Oh my gosh, so 60%. 60% of its entire body weight is just the muscles used for biting. What's the second fact? Lay it on us. All right. The second fact is that humans have been interacting with lions since the dawn of civilization. In fact, our earliest surviving record of a lion hunt is an Egyptian inscription that's dated circa 1380 BC. And it features Pharaoh Amenhotep III, who is said to have killed 102 lions with his own arrows. During the first 10 years of his rule. That's a lot of lions to kill. Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh is really impressed with himself. The conditions through which he killed these lions, not enumerated. Yeah, not clear. It's like we brought a lion to you and put it in a box and then you killed it. Precisely. My third fact is that here in the modern day, we think of lions as creatures that exist in Africa. But they used to live in mm-hmm. all sorts of different places. In Greece, lions were common as reported by Herodotus in 500, well, 480 BC. Although this lion was considered rare in Greece by 300 BC and completely gone by AD 100, it was present in the Caucasus Mountains until the 10th century. It was present in Palestine until the Middle Ages. It was present in Southwest Asia until the very late 19th century. And by the late 19th century, it had been kicked out of pretty much everywhere but Turkey. The last living lion anywhere in the Middle East was spotted in Iran either around 1942 or 1944, depending on accounts. But we can see that lions have a long, rich history, and that's the reason why so many lords and kingdoms of medieval Europe looked to the lion for their house symbol. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I definitely did not know that. And I'm guessing that it's not all the same, you know, species of lion or like there might have been different kinds of lions in some of these places. But I guess I guess I'll have to learn more. No, you're absolutely right. The cave lion, of course, that existed in Europe is known as Leo Spileus, which just means cave lion. But all right. My fourth Mm. fact is actually a question for you. I've done my research Mm. and I wanted to ask you how old. Do you think a lion can live in captivity? In captivity? Um, I feel like I've seen stuff about about lions 
living a fairly long time, but I'm scared to make a guess. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna like try to base this on like. Well, let's work together. Let's work together. Yeah, let's work together. <laughs> How old's the oldest house cat that you know has lived? And then do you think the oh, number I will be higher or lower than that? Gotta imagine it's lower. So I'm, I guess I'll probably like put something in like the thirty year range. You've heard Which of I know... a thirty year house cat? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, sometimes people say that, but um, no. But I think there's like twenty year old house cats, and I know I just said lower, but I feel like there's probably some lion that's just like somehow lived to thirty. I really like the way that we work this out <laughs> together. I tried to provide some useful information, and I like the way you worked it through. You weren't that far <laughs> off. The oldest three okay. lions that we've ever had in captivity were aged uh-huh. 22. Okay, I didn't do bad. You didn't do all that bad, yes. Two of which were twins, Leo twins, oh. born in 1986. So they died about 10 or 15 years ago, but yes. 22 is the oldest we've seen lions get in captivity, whereas in nature, we think that they probably get anywhere between 10 to 16. My next fact about lions is that they spend a lot of their time resting. This is something that you learn as a kid, but the actual numbers are staggering. A typical lion or lioness is inactive for about 20 hours per day. So that leaves the leftover four hours, which they spend on average two hours of which walking, another hour eating, and then that last hour, you know, that's just lion's delight. Well, I mean, their heads are really heavy, you know? 60% of their entire body. (laughs) It's wild. Just in the cheeks and the jaw. My last fact about lions here is that when they go on a hunt, they have positions like a sports team. Hmm. Me and you, we follow basketball. So when I think about sports, mm-hmm. I think about point guards and centers and forwards. And when I was reading about a lion hunt, I couldn't help but think, this sounds awfully familiar. The hunt was described, quote, each lioness has a favored position in the group, either stalking prey or on the wing, then attacking or moving a small distance from the center of the group and then capturing prey fleeing from other lionesses. So they worked together as some sort of coordinated strategic attack, which I thought was really interesting. Wow, such great lion facts. I feel like I learned a ton of stuff that I didn't know. Um, I got to guess it was very exciting stuff. So let's leave Creature Corner and our analysis and move on to our Rhett Constellations. But definitely let us know over on Twitter at StorytimePod if you have other lion facts or one of these was your favorite because we'd love to hear from you. We are back with our segment, Rhett Constellation. In this segment, we look for ways to modernize and deepen the stories of our monthly constellation, as well as to find ways to make them less cringy. So tell me about your Rhett Constellation for this month, Jordan. All right, in my Rhett Constellation, we open with a royal birth and a grand celebration. We have an entire kingdom joined together in song. Our first act is that Mm -hmm. we follow the life of this young prince, And he squabbles with his family, his mother, his father, his uncle, and advisors. 
and learns the great responsibility that will come with leading the realm one day. At first, he's rebellious and resistant to this presumed position of authority we'll have to inhabit. And he escapes from the kingdom's rule to flee this responsibility. Here he is captured by enemies of the crown. He remains locked away until finally his father frees him, takes him back to the kingdom, and reiterates his importance as a future ruler. One night, a few weeks or months or years later, they are together on a hunting expedition, and the prince finds himself in the middle of a great battlefield. A trampling stampede marches towards him. He watches with horror as his father is killed, and fearing for his life, he runs away, flees the scenes of this great battle, chased all the while by enemies of the crown. Finally, he managed to escape as an outlaw. Here, he meets a meerkat and a warhog. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Wait a second. Wait, wait. Okay. So is, is, I have a question. <laughs> I have a question. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just have a really important question. Can I ask, um, is this prince a lion? Maybe. <laughs> is this, is this the Lion King? <laughs> Never heard of it. This is my very original wreck consolation. I came up with this entirely from scratch. And I'd love to finish at another time and place. Oh my gosh. Oh. I was like, I was like, okay, like, where is this going? Where are we going with this? I was like, okay, I'm not sure when we're going to get to the lion. But um, I see now. It's always been about the lion. To your credit, or I guess to Disney's credit, <laughs> The Lion King has a better message than the original myth. I really tried to portray it from Simba's point of view. So Simba doesn't know that his uncle is attacking him at this time, right? Um, and I would have got to that, but somehow you figured out my retcon. Oh, I don't know. Maybe you came up with something better. So... <laughs> How about you, Kit? What was your uh, reconciliation of this myth? So my reconciliation is titled Leo Rising, and I tried to sort of play around with some of the themes and the issues that we had with the original myths. So in my version, Leo is a lioness goddess who rescues people in need. The people that she rescues come to live in a village of peace and harmony until one day a self-proclaimed hero, whether this is Gilgamesh or Hercules or Perseus or one of those kinds of characters, they come along and attack and kill the lioness because she has been undermining the power structures of the day by rescuing people from those who victimize, enslave, or oppress them. After a short period of mourning for the lioness, the villagers regroup and they refuse to yield to the hero and go back to the way things were. They mirror the bravery of their lioness and with their newfound power and strength, they take a stand and fight back. Unfortunately, many of them are killed in the struggle, but those that flee are able to spread word of this truly inspiring event. And eventually these stories spread as stories do, and they serve to inspire others and ultimately create a world that is more equitable and peaceful. 
The lioness, in turn, is memorialized in the stars, and she is proudly watching over the new world she helped to create. This is my favorite rec constellation you've done yet. Long live the gold lioness. I like her a lot better than I like Gilgamesh, and certainly a lot better than I like Hercules. I think this is a really important retcon that shows the power of resistance, and I thank you for adding it. Alright, Kit. It's time to wrap things up by getting a little less serious and a whole lot sillier here in our final segment, Pop Culture Superstars. In this segment, we share our favorite and least favorite occurrences of this month's constellation in pop culture, and then we wish upon a star for what we think should exist. Yeah, this month is an exciting one for us. Um, do you want to start? Do you want me to start? How do you want to play it this month? I think we should start out with our least okay. favorites. Do you have a collection of least favorite honorable mentions? Or do you have one least favorite in particular? I had one least favorite and then sort of like a secondary least favorite. Um, it was kind of hard for me to pick, to be honest. Um because, you know, I'm sort of predisposed to liking Leo as a brand. But I ultimately decided to go with famed quarter horse sire Leo. <laughs> yeah, Tell me I more. I just kind of object to there being a horse called Leo. And when I looked yeah. up Leo, he didn't really, like, have any lion energy. So it's like I can respect, you know, sometimes, you know, they give dogs the lion haircut. And I'm like, if you have a dog that can pull off yes. a lion haircut, you can call it Leo. But this horse didn't give me any lion energy. It didn't have a lion haircut. It didn't have the coloring of a lion. And so that was my least favorite. Uh, how about you? Was Leo the, the quarter horse sire your choice or something else? I wish. I think I took a much broader mm -hmm. scope with this month's constellation. Okay. My least favorite Leo in pop culture are the collected sequels to The Lion King. <laughs> Lion King one and a half, as well as Simba's Pride. They are awful. Someone please hire Shakespeare or a Shakespeare AI to write a better script than these. I don't know if you've gone mm -hmm. back and rewatched them in the past 20 years. They are heinous. So that's my least favorite. And I think a better Lion King sequel is mm. out there, you know? And that belief really makes me judgmental of the ones that we did. Yeah, could have done better. But okay, let's get to our most favorite I'll let you start. Where did you see Leo as your favorite depiction in pop culture? So here's the thing. This one I've had um, in the brain storage basically since we started working on this podcast. So uh, I didn't overthink it. And um, it's actually kind of a throwback to our first episode um, that instead of picking Leo in pop culture that I was, that resonated with me the most, I picked a Leo, a person that was a Leo, who I love mm. the most. Mm -hmm. And that person, uh, you might know her, 
Um, she, her name is Jordan Tierney. Um, she's my sister, and she's my favorite Leo in pop culture. Oh, screw you. That was my absolute favorite. It was you, Ken Irving. I had a whole list of bronze and silver, and they weren't even close. It's, it's you. you. I am so grateful I get to do this this podcast with you and be your friend and watch you grow and accomplish all these incredible things. I mean, Kit, you're brilliant. And you're kind and supportive of my best friend. You'll always be my favorite, Leo. Oh, always. Well, I'm glad we both have the same idea because we're always on the same wavelength. And that's very cute. And I love you so much. And I do want to hear your your uh, follow-up contenders for Leo as well. I didn't do them because I was lazy. I mean, here's the thing. You had this idea eight mm. months ago. It just struck <laughs> me today as I was collecting all of my honorable mentions. So our wavelengths, albeit the same, take different times mm-hmm. to reach. But yeah, as I thought about it today, as I went over all of my encyclopedia mm-hmm. entries, as I collected my honorable mentions, yeah, there wasn't anyone who came close to Kid Irving. Some of my honorable mentions. My bronze medal winner for Leo slash Lion mm-hmm. of Pop Culture is the appearance of Richard the Lionheart in our mom's second favorite movie, Mm -hmm. the 1968 British-American classic, The Lion Mm -hmm. in Winter, starring Catherine Mm -hmm. Hepburn as Catherine of Aragon, as well as Peter O'Toole as King Henry Mm -hmm. II, and this whole film revolves around their strained relationship, i.e. he has locked her away in a <laughs> tower across the British Channel, classic, etc. Anyways, the focus of this film is their whole family coming together for Christmas in 1183 with King Henry and Catherine of Aragon trading sly, brilliant barbs while their three sons fight over who should inherit mm. the throne. One of these three sons is Richard the Lionheart. And guess who plays Richard in one of his very first film roles? Well, tell us. It's our guy, Sir Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> it's an incredible first turn for Anthony Hopkins. And in this movie, Rick. And in this movie, Richard gets in a bit of hot water because there's a rumor that may or may not have been true that he had a relationship with King Philip of Mm -hmm. France when he was younger, which, of course, complicates things. But yes, definitely check it out. We have Catherine Hepburn being cutting and hilarious. We have young Anthony Hopkins, who's phenomenal, and Peter O'Toole as the king, and I'm pretty sure he's wasted (laughs) the entire time they were filming this. Alright, yes, like I said, The Lion in Winter, this classic British drama, is one of Mom's favorite movies. But do you happen to remember what Mom's favorite movie is, I can't forget it. Because when she told me this, I was hysterically laughing. So her favorite film 
is uh, Night at the Museum, the film starring uh, Ben Stiller, uh, where, you know, he's a security guard overnight at the museum and everything comes to life. So, yeah, those two fit perfectly well together um, and they they make sense. They're a good summary, I think, of our, our mom. <laughs> My silver medal winner for Leo of the Month of our pop culture is Leonardo da Vinci. Of course, the originator of these fantastic designs like ornithopters, as well as a keen scientist and anatomist. And my favorite thing about Leonardo Vinci, actually, are his last words. And his last words, as recorded on his deathbed, are, I have wasted my hours. So the next time you're feeling like you have some sort of imposter syndrome, just remember that Leonardo frickin' Da Vinci, who is still remembered 600 years later, at the very end of his life still thought he was a fuck-up and a failure. You know? So I think that's really relatable. I think this perfect merger of art and science and self-doubt is totally relatable. Which brings me, of course, to my gold, who was, of course, Kit Irving. Da Vinci did waste all of his hours, or else he would have been friends with us both. Alright, I'd be happy to start with what I wish existed. Alright, go for it. Alright, I'm going to hearken back to Creature Corner. You may remember one of our facts about how a lion can sleep up to 20 Mm -hmm. hours a day. So what I wish existed is Leo's sleep Mm -hmm. technology. Which does give you that ability to sleep 20 hours a day. I don't care if it's a pill or light blocking curtains or a sleep Mm -hmm. pod. It really doesn't matter how they make it happen. I just feel as though I could get most of my life done in four (laughs) hours a day and enjoy it pretty much as much. And you know what? Especially in winter, Kit. All of winter. Like, just give me the sunniest, warmest Mm -hmm. hours of the day. And, of course, I mean, would I prefer to hibernate through the right. whole season? Yes. But we'll have to save that for Ursa the Great Bear I was thinking about that. But what when about you? When you said this, I was like, can it be like a hibernation uh, thing? But great point. Uh, you've, circ- you've already predicted my response, and I think it's a great idea. Leo sleep technology. Here's the thing. Kings and queens of their terrain sleep 20 hours a day. I think think that's a pretty good model i think i could get most of my life done within those constraints so that's what i wish existed again i don't know if it's going to be a medicine that you take i don't know if it's a building Mm -hmm. that you live in but i think that as a human we could learn some things from the lions how about you what was what you wish it existed as part of the leo constellation it's also related to creature corner (laughs) um so as you might be aware Uh, Lions are considered a vulnerable species, and that great history you gave us about the lions and where they used to live and where they don't live anymore shows us that. Um, And in some places, lions are critically endangered. So what I would like the Leo brand to become is an organization that stands for Lion Endangerment Offensive Strategy, or LEOs, 
and it will have a multi. <laughs> oh yeah, I see you what like you that? did there. Uh, it has a multi-pronged. Yeah, I like it has that a, a lot. multi-pronged strategy to protect lions and other wild cats from humans. So you know, I know there are a lot of wildlife protection organizations out there, but I want one that's focused on lions and wild cats, and I want them to use the Leo branding to its fullest potential. So that is what I would propose. Kit, I think that's an excellent addition. I hope that our lion and lioness species long outlive us as humans, but you're right. They are endangered, and we have to do our best we can to protect them. And you know, it's only a matter of time before one of our wishes comes true. Kit, this has been one of my favorite episodes, and listeners, thank you for joining us today as we learned all about the constellation Leo. Next month on Storytime, we'll be talking about Virgo, the maiden. This has been Kit. And Jordan. Sisters, lovers of stars and stories. <laughs>